Hello and welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today I have on Eric Kaysen, who describes himself as a crypto anarchist. He's definitely has a cypherpunk uh, philosophy in life and it was just an awesome conversation talking about the importance of bitcoin you know what anarchism really is it's there's a lot of misconceptions on it you know the news will oftentimes just uh character assassinate anarchists and i thought it's kind of a cool ideology uh that really seeks to empower people and uh there's a lot of misconceptions and, you know, I wanted to get some anarchists on the show that also were Bitcoiners to, to talk about it and talk about, you know, how it uh, could impact society. But yeah, it was a fun conversation and I took a lot away from it. Um, and if, of course, if you like what we're doing, please consider uh, supporting me on Patreon at the Tucson Bitcoin podcast. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome, Eric. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are a uh, self-described crypto anarchist. So so what does that mean? Uh, to me, it means utilizing cryptography in order to try to get ourselves closer to achieving an anarchist society. And to me, that doesn't mean, you know, chaos and, and lawlessness everywhere. It simply means without rulers, you know, and I, I think people are very capable of organizing themselves and helping one another uh specifically like when they have understandable and thoughtful rules that make sense according to whatever's going on and essentially bitcoin cryptography in my mind is a way that we can rebuild society using the internet and strong privacy protection to essentially try to reorganize the world from top to bottom you know and, and we're at the very beginning stages of that of which in my opinion bitcoin's kind of the the harbinger of the entire movement because it gives us a shilling point to sort of meet up at yeah definitely i uh there's a misconception with anarchism uh for some reason well i i mean i think the reason would be pretty obvious in the sense of like it challenges the authority of the state and the state doesn't like that but uh people tend to think like you said, um, kind of alluded to, but people tend to think of anarchism as as just like chaos. Um, and you did a really good definition of what anarchism is. Uh, what led you to become, to, to kind of think this way and feel like um, there was an o- other option than government? Uh, so I was pretty deeply involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement. I was pretty far left at the point in time. And, you know, I would identify as like a socialist, maybe a communist in some contexts. Uh, and through the process of, of going through Wall Street, you know, I was introduced to anarchism. I had kind of the same ideas about it. You know, like it was like destroy everything and light on fire and let chaos reign. Uh, and I talked to a few people who were like, no, that's not it at all. You should do a little more research, try to figure it out more. Uh, and as I watched kind of the, the Occupy movement uh, devolve and, and sort of uh, hamstring itself from its original cause, I started to, to do more research around anarchism. And I realized that uh, there was this way to try to achieve a stateless society without essentially needing to like hijack the state and make a dictatorship or proletariat. And that's sort of what anarchism was all about was like, look we can create these new societies together and work together. But the moment that we start trying to hijack the state and utilizing it, uh, like that, that goes really bad. And essentially the 20th century is the story about what happens uh, when you get radical socialists that make a choice to hijack the state and try to implement communism. And it's gone over pretty poorly. Uh, With that being said, it's pretty clear to me that the state is radically overpowered and has uh, created a form of life that's pretty undesirable for most people. And the great, and you know, from my readings of, of reading kind of classic anarchist theorists like Bakun and Rudolf Bacher, uh, it really resonated with me. And I was like, oh, this is a way that people can subjectively choose to voluntary, voluntarily participate in new organizational structures that can allow for them to help each other and offer mutual assistance to one another. 
And then at the same time, it was serendipitous enough that uh, somebody in the Occupy movement told me about Bitcoin. And this was like very early on. Uh, and I still had a hard time kind of understanding it. But I remember there was a distinct point in time where I had a light bulb of all it's like, oh, it's like it's the money. Like if we can do something about the money, like this object that we all use every day to you know, organize our economic lives, we can make a really substantial impact and change. And I guess at that point, that's kind of when the light bulb went off and I was like, oh, like it's crypto anarchy, you know? And then I started reading kind of Timothy May's stuff and Cryptonomicon. And from there, I just kind of started eating it all up. Yeah, uh, as far as the Occupy Wall Street movement, is there still some remnants of that or did it pretty much fizzle out? Uh, I mean, I think all the activists that were involved kind of went in their various directions to kind of fight for different causes and things. And, um, you know, I do think a, a lot of it fizzled out. I remember actually seeing something recently, like one of the prime organizers of Occupy Wall Street, he like went on to be like a marketing manager at like Uber or something. Um, and like, that's kind of a great example of like the way that, um, yeah, like the trying to fight for your rights against the state directly in my opinion uh you know like it, it it's a loveless task in, in our erroneous uh quest you know like it, it, it's impossible to try to fight the state head on and that's one of the things about bitcoin that i find really exciting is it's this sly roundabout way to essentially attack the state without them fully understanding it and i have this whole thing i like to talk about about that like uh, essentially like bitcoin's a trojan horse and the way that uh and blockchain too because like people are like look like you can use all these blockchains for this good stuff but like on the back end it's there's like all of this high-powered cryptography that like when implemented and used utilized correctly like you're you become self-sovereign um and so it, you know i think it's a really exciting time because essentially the failures that anarchism had in the earliest 20th century that that you know made it scum uh, both to, to socialism and, and to, to fascism on, on the far right, uh, a lot of it was the actual like techniques of organization, which essentially cryptography and Bitcoin and all of these new methodologies of organization solve in a really powerful way. So I think there's a, a much better chance that it can, it can succeed this time around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it's interesting to watch uh, the state pushback against cryptography and against these different uh, technologies, like they're continuously trying to float both in the EU and in US Congress, trying to float bills through that would end end to end encryption um, and require companies to provide backdoors. Do you see that as something being problematic and could that completely derail this movement? Uh, no. but. So like there's a concept in international relations called brinkmanship and it's where states like escalate conflicts against each other further and further to try to get a favorable outcome. Uh, and that's sort of what this is, is doing is the states being like, you better stop or else. And it's like, or else what? You try to backdoor these companies, you utterly fucking destroy them because nobody trusts them. And then it recreates itself, you know, essentially in Tor and in the dark net as like a much better and more functional methodology. And like we did all this in the 90s with the, the original crypto wars when the state was trying to implement the, the clipper chip and other things, you know, they, they classified cryptography as a munition, threatened to punish anybody with severe jail times. They tried to export cryptography, you know, but thankfully uh, it turned out that these are just numbers, it's just speech and, you know, courts recognize it as such. Um, and so like, I do, I do think that Perhaps there are setbacks in it, but I also think that this, uh, this is an inevitable direction. And I think the sooner that people deal with it in a thoughtful way of that, like, look, the state's going to show up and try to do this. And how are we going to make a choice to organize around and against that, as opposed to just letting them destroy one's business? Uh, you know, so I guess in short of it, like, maybe it'll do a temporary setback, but like, you can't this thing's out of the box. Like there's no way that you're going to destroy cryptography or take that power away from people. You know, to me, it's, it's very similar to trying to say like, okay, we're going to make guns illegal in America. It's like, good luck. You know, like there, there's a very, very well-armed populace that you're going to have to figure out how to get their guns from them. And I don't see how that's going to actually be executed in a meaningful way. 
Yeah, definitely. It's it seems like the state and the way that they try and grow and attain more power is through incrementalism, um, through a slow, steady progression. Um, and you know, I I love arguing with progressives and socialists because you know they argue for one against free markets a lot of times and then two for uh socialist or democratic socialism and one of the things i like to explain to them is that we've had socialism for a long time in the united states and uh it's just like what central banking creates is that that type of incrementalism where you know all these different uh companies become nationalized and dependent on the government and you know they're getting to pick the the winners and the losers and you know we're seeing a lot of that and uh bitcoin's a really interesting uh, and cool opt out of the system and you kind of alluded to a, a friedrich hayek uh quote i think with the, like the the sly roundabout way of uh um what the quote was exactly but Having, having to go through um, indirect uh, kind of sneaky ways to get around and fight yeah. the state. Yep, that is definitely a reference to Hayek. And, uh, you know, like I, I think kind of my lightning bolt moment of understanding it, because there, there was this window for me where like I, I was trying really hard to understand Bitcoin and cryptography and I wasn't getting all of it. And then I picked up uh, Hayek's The Denationalization of Money. And it just blew me away. So I was like, well, this guy like somehow predicted all of this was going to happen. Uh, but to me, like that's really what Bitcoin is: is about denationalization of you know national currencies. And through that that process, uh, we unwind socialism. And, and, and like socialism is such like a loaded concept because I also understand how on on the left people are like this isn't socialism at all it's corporatism and I agree with them and it, it is well and, and like this is sort of the hilarious part is like it's this mutual fusion fusion of socialism and corporatism in a way to where we get the worst of both worlds uh, and like that's pretty much exclusively been done through the banking establishment and the incrementalism that allows for them to operate as this separate arm of the US government. You know, like essentially banks have been deputized to enforce this entire agenda for the US government that it can't directly do itself. Uh, and essentially like through us attacking nation state currency, uh, it's just this really powerful way across the board that allows for us to make sure that government can't, you know, print up what four trillion dollars and hand that shit out to all of its friends while not giving anything to the general public uh in addition to the to the fact that we can also fight against this ability for the state to actually have empowerment against us you know like i think one of the most radically powerful things is once you have a substantial amount of money in bitcoin and you secure that correctly with multi-sig or something else like that's your money there isn't any instant where the state can come after you in a way to extract that and then furthermore like you know you can set up these multi-signature schemes and then have a lawyer that represents you as well so that like if the state does come and capture you and say hey you're a criminal that we can't uh you know like one of the ones that worries me the most is uh using this enemy combatant clause within the patriot act to essentially capture people and deprive them of habeas corpus, you know, at least now, uh, instead of getting all your assets and stuff seized so you can't have a meaningful fight against it, uh, you could have a lawyer who's protecting all of your Bitcoin with this multi-signature scheme and able to draw on that wealth to at least defend you. Um, so yeah, I do think it's a very powerful and, and sneaky way that we've implemented it. And, the, and to me, the most exciting thing is, is particularly with how much noise is going on in the whole crypto sphere with the 9,000 different blockchains that there are, uh, it's like created such a powerful abusiation about what's really going on. And I feel like when the state finally realizes what is going on, it's, it's gonna try to clamp down and just completely fail because it's been so behind the ball on it. Yeah. So you're, you know, in your, um, you're kind of arguing that the state doesn't know what's going on. Do you? Why, yeah, I don't what, think they do. 
Yeah. I mean, that's believable. Like when, when we watch uh, Congress, um, you know, talk with these tech CEOs like Dorsey or Zuckerberg, they seem to have no idea. Of, I, I watched one where a Republican uh, House member was trying to figure or blasting the the Google guy, um, trying to figure out why his campaign emails were going to spam. Um, <laughs> and that was uh, you could talk to him about. Yeah, it, it's like three minutes. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think there's some a good argument for that. But when it comes to like the intelligence agencies that really pull a lot of strings and have a lot of unchecked power behind uh, closed doors like the NSA or you know whichever one. Um, do you feel like they would be a threat potentially? You know, when I was at Coindesk, I worked with a, a guy, the, one of the security guys, like he used to be, uh, he used to work for one of those three other agencies. And it was funny talking to him because there was just a flat out refusal to believe uh, that like Bitcoin could ever kind of challenge their power. And he was like, you don't, you don't understand Like these guys are so smart, like so ahead of the ball on everything. Like there's no possible way that they could let this get around them. Um, and I think he has a point, you know, like, I think it's, it's, I, I would say it's it's relatively likely that Satoshi Nakamoto might have been an individual from an intelligence agency. Uh, but even if they do know these things, they're still at the behets of the leaders of the system. And like, while the whole deep state is this like really sophisticated intelligent apparatus, it's still ran by these absolute morons in Congress and other places who you know, through their sheer hubris, they're they're sitting here asking a guy like Eric Schmidt about how their email servers are set up when they don't realize what a ludicrous question that is to even ask him. And so I think on some level, uh, like even if the NSA is like in the background being like, look, like this Bitcoin thing's super dangerous, I could essentially see Cong congressional people and staffers just being like, ah, no, like this is... This is just like a trend like Beanie Babies or Tulip Bulbs. Like, get out of here. Like, it can't actually accomplish anything. And then even once, you know, it, it does get to this place where uh, essentially the mask of it's ripped off and, you know, oh, it's turning out that this could actually really challenge the power of the state in a radical way. Uh, I just think it's too far gone at this point in time. You know, like we're talking about millions of people who own Bitcoin, the network's so extremely powerful and distributed across the board. It would require tens of millions of dollars investment and then more tens of millions of dollars of energy expenditure to meaningfully attack the network. And then even if you mount a 51% attack on the network, like that just means you've gotten your ladders up on the Citadel. Like now you actually have to beat the thing back and defeat it which at this point, essentially nodes are gonna realize there's a 51% attack, reorganize and not recognize that node and then move forward. So frankly, like I think the things are just too far gone. Even if an intelligence agency made a, a fully committed effort with all of its power to attack, not just Bitcoin, but like crypto on a whole and needing to, to defeat it, I, I just don't see any meaningful way that they could do that. I mean, and I'm totally open to being wrong. It just seems, uh, I just don't see how it would be accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. There was a pretty big milestone broken yesterday, uh, or at least I saw Pomp posted on Twitter that uh, the market cap of Bitcoin eclipsed uh, JP Morgan's market cap. And I thought that was pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty cool. But it is, you know, and I think like this, that's part of the reason why what you were talking to earlier about us needing this reformation, I think we're at the beginning of it, you know, because like the, I don't think Bitcoin's too secretive about what it's really trying to do and whose power it's trying to challenge. And people are really interested in that, you know, and I think despite, uh, despite how much, you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world create all of this noise and uh, you know, they make looking out there like stuff, stuff's really bad and people are real stupid and stuff's real brutal. 
from the conversations that I have, like people are pretty curious and open and thoughtful and want change in a pretty radical way that isn't part of the two party state system. And this is like a meaningful exit, you know, like watching kind of the insanity of this election go on and people being like, fuck your red guy, my blue guy is better. And they're like, no, your blue guy eats shit, I hate him. And it's like, what, what the fuck are you guys doing? You're never gonna meet these people. They don't give a fuck about you. They're never gonna come near any of your family. And they're totally invested in getting you guys to absolutely fucking hate each other. We have so much more to win together as Americans who mutually value freedom and the subjective choice of liberty and what that means to live in a peaceful society with one another where we can actually have disagreements like this and move forward and live together than in creating this other shit show of a society that they want where we viciously hate the other person simply because they have some slightly different belief from us about how governance should be done. You know, and to me, Bitcoin is, is much more importantly than voting. It's actually taking the money that you use to fund the state. And you're saying, you know what? I would subjectively choose to put that money into this different economic system that you can't control, that you can't take advantage of, that you can't manipulate for your own purposes. Uh, and I think that's a much more powerful move. And it excites me that people seem to be understanding that message. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like in, in my lifetime, the uh, there's been a continuous uh, downtrend in regards to trust for the state. Uh, it's just plummeting. Um, what with uh, the 2008 uh, um, financial crisis and, you know, what with... Uh, I don't know. I mean, the Iraq war, you know, you go down the list, it's just bad thing after another. And then this election, what do you, what do you think it would take to really like push people over the edge and say that this is just like enough is enough. We're done with this. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't think there's anything. Um, like I, I think the, the constant slippings that we've been seeing um, to me is part of like this general reinforcement of the state to like try to get people to, like look away, look down, like don't engage, like be quiet, uh, like know your place, stay there. Um, and like while I think like contingencies of people would rise up and resist, like I do think it's a, a pretty dangerous place that we're in overall because uh, yeah, like I, I, I honestly believe that if um, you know, say there was some state of emergency declared that anybody who's ever identified as an anarchist needs to be arrested and held under these emergency laws that, you know, allow for you to be labeled an enemy combatant. Like, I, I don't expect if people were to show up at my house and black bag me that like a lot of people would make a lot of fuss about it. And I don't, I don't think that they would do that about other people either. Um, yeah, it's kind of sad. And, and with that being said, I think we're already at the place where that small cohort of people who are outraged about what's going on have already kind of made their choice and are already making their own preparations for how they're going to fight back against the sea. And I'm not sure like how that actually uh, like meaningfully creates itself outside of, you know, Bitcoin continuing to deflate against the dollar and essentially anybody who becomes invested in the system becoming uh wealthy in a way that allows for them to be self-sovereign enough to essentially remove themselves from the cities and go live in a more rural life or live with other people that have similar values. Yeah. What do you, you, you have a website, cryptosovereignty.org. Uh, mm -hmm. What, it's a really cool website. What, what got you to go and create that? Was that, your moment of trying to fight back um yeah there's a couple of things like i you know since like 2013 i've wrote like a number of different essays anonymously and uh you know like they're, they're kind of around the same topic uh you know this was still when i was i was moving out of some of my uh far left phase so some of it deals more with marxism and socialism uh but i have a good friend who's like read all the essays and he's like this stuff's like really really great he was like you know, at some point in time, you know, it was like, you need to like move away from that non stuff and really like put your name on your work and, and take credit for it. If you want to like go out there and start having meaningful dialogue with people. 
And I remember I thought pretty conflicted about it at the point in time because I was like, you know, that's going to make, you know, poor OPSEC. It's going to make me a target for these people. Uh, like my, my beliefs are pretty radical. Maybe I'll be ridiculed. Um, and so like I had, I had left Coinbase in uh, late 2017 and I really wanted to focus more on my writing. And I had wrote like a number of essays I hadn't published kind of about these more kind of extreme theological ideas. And, uh, I'd been reading a lot of philosophy and I'd sort of just finally made a decision of like, you know what, like, I'm going to just put myself out there. I'm going to start publishing my beliefs. And uh, if I'm attacked by people or if people ridicule me, that that's fine. Like at least I get to live my own honest truth. Uh, and I found that, you know, like it was actually a lot of people were pretty welcoming towards it and open and it gave me the motivation to keep writing more. And I found as I was doing that, I sort of discovered, I guess what you'd call sort of my own uh, philosophical outlook about like what Bitcoin is and cryptography on a whole is, um, you know, and to essentially surmise it, like, I do believe that these are radical liberative weapons that allow for us to radically change our circumstance in the world and choose the sort of society and economy that we want to build together. Like we no longer have to be subjected to the nation state and their fiat money and their ability to rob us when we can choose to put our wealth in something like Bitcoin or other crypto assets and what that offers us. Um, yeah, and I'm also like, I'm just really interested in a lot of the philosophical questions that this stuff brings up. Cause I feel like it's been really overlooked. Um, and I'm by no means an expert in the area of philosophy around this. And I just hope that by writing around it, I would really welcome other people to start thoughtfully contributing to, you know, deeper philosophical questions about, you know, like what, like what really is the purpose of Bitcoin? Is it just about money or is it about something else? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is, is, it's paradigm shifting in so many ways it to understand to have a basic understanding of it you have to ask a lot of questions that you've probably people have probably never even thought of or knew existed so you know what is money um people don't think about that uh you know what is you know the idea of like interacting on a peer-to-peer um basis uh without any sort of third party meteors, um, people don't really think about that. You know, they're just thinking about convenience, like Venmo's great or, you know, whatever. Um, they don't think about like letting go of privacy, you know, with debit, credit transactions, you know, at all these different stores, you know, and how Bitcoin can provide privacy. Um, so yeah, it, it is a pretty cool paradigm shift and, uh, um, so yeah, as, uh, I want to, I want to circle back. So you, you talked a little bit about, I think it was on Guy Swan's podcast. You, you talked about, um, being kind of like a, a left anarchist. So what are the different branches of anarchism? Um, well, there, there's a bunch, um, and I guess like if, if I was forced to identify there, there's a, a form of anarchism that's called anarchism without adjectives. And essentially the idea that tries to take this whole hodgepodge mix of anarchist ideas and says, look, like, let's stop labeling all of them. Like if you want to fight against the state, like we can find an alliance with you. Um, but in terms of the different kinds, I guess if you'd say like on the far, far left, you have anarcho-communism, which is essentially the, the idea that you want to achieve communism through, through anarchism, so to do it without the state. Uh, there's anarcho-syndicalism, which is kind of the idea of various syndicates, which are essentially uh, trade unions, working groups, uh, community organizations, kind of any small affinity group that creates itself, them all marrying up and allowing for themselves to kind of create these new cohorts that do mutual aid to each other. And then there's also just individual anarchists that, that are just like radically, you own yourself, you own your body, you own everything that happens to you. You have absolute right to, to do whatever you want with your body. 
Uh, and then I guess kind of even on the right, you'd have people like Sterner and their egoism that that's like, you know, whatever you can even manifest in this world as an individual, you can do. Um, you know, and to me, like some of the more important ones are just uh, exploring these topics and seeing what they have to say. Um, and and like for me personally, I think Rudolf Rocker really captures the idea of American anarchism in a very powerful way. Uh and he, he was also deeply influential on Noam Chomsky as well. Uh, and I think he's able to kind of frame up the ideas of anarcho-syndicalism really well. And, his, I, and I think, I'm trying to remember the name of like his major anarchist book, uh, but he, he wrote it in response to the Spanish Civil War and what the anarcho-syndicalists were doing with the Republican forces fighting fascism during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and I think he wrote it at the behest of Emma Goldman. She like really encouraged him to write that. And so I think that that frames up a lot of the ideals of anarchism in a really powerful and thoughtful way. Awesome. Yeah. It's a, uh, you, re you referenced Noam Chomsky and he's a, I think a Tucson favorite because he's a professor at the University of Arizona here in town. Um, but, but yeah, his, his book, um, uh, what's it called? Just blank. Manufactured consent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was pretty uh, pretty wild. You know that idea, and you know there's all these like. Well, there's I'd, a I'd lot also of point out. Nom Nom was originally a linguistic, a linguistist. Mm -hmm. You know, and like it's really interesting that through his study of language, he came to anarchism. And I just want to point that out because I do think that there's a an interesting connection to the linguistic phenomenon like it is Bitcoin and the blockchain and how that also creates anarchism. But I'm sorry, I yeah. didn't mean to cut you off. No, no worries. Yeah, that's a that's a cool point. Um, yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah. So it's a kind of a weird time um, right now. Uh, it, one of the, one of the things that I found really interesting. So there's there's some books that are pretty popular in uh, the Bitcoin sphere. So you know the uh, uh, creature from Jekyll Island, uh, sovereign individual, uh, fourth turning. You know there's all these mm -hmm. um, different books that are referenced quite a bit, and they seem to be pretty prophetic as far as uh, um, you know what like their predictions coming true so i i feel like uh it's pretty easy to say right now that the state's going to grow bigger the abuses are going to grow bigger certain people groups are going to be targeted more um uh how do you how do you live um confidently knowing or believing these types of ideas um and just like watching them come true um and seeing the failings of the state over and over um yeah that's a good question well, i think part of it one is is that uh like realizing living outside of the state is really important um you know not like the the, the state can never provide a, a, a real life of security or safety for us like that that's all an illusion um, and I got like something I've been thinking a lot about is that I just finished reading this book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is about, uh, like, uh, it's wrote by this radical educator, Paulo Free, and in Brazil in the 1970s. And he talked about, uh, doing critical consciousness raising with oppressed people to bring them awareness of their oppression. And uh, he talks about how, uh, like that first encounter where you really start questioning things and you realize that you're oppressed is extremely difficult and scary because like you, you realize that there is this entire system that is out to exploit and steal from you and wants to abuse and harm you. Uh, and a lot of people can collapse in that. But at the same time, there's also this opportunity to realize that now that you're conscious of what's occurring to you, you have the ability to learn to fight it and how to help yourself. And that through that kind of encounter of admitting to yourself the truth of how scary these things are, you can say, okay, well, I am afraid that the state's going to come after me for 
whatever reason at some point in time, how can I actively resist that? What can I do to protect myself and my family in a meaningful and thoughtful way? Uh, and I think things like Bitcoin allow for that. And to your point earlier that you were saying about, uh, you know, the there are these sort of prophetic writings that are there. I think a lot of these writing components are asking many of the same questions that people are curious about and want to know more about. And through that act of questioning, people essentially arrive at the conclusion of, oh, like I can use Bitcoin to achieve self-sovereignty for myself. I can use it to run a business that operates outside of the purview of the state. I can use it to create real savings that can't get inflated by the state, nor that a bank can randomly seize for its own pleasure. Um, and I think that, that admitting to ourselves that uh, the state could do all these very dangerous and scary things, that they are gonna take more people's power, they are gonna be more repressive and hurtful to people is true. But we also have to realize that we are empowered to change that. You know, and like that, frankly, like that is part of the entire concourse of what Americanism is about, is about knowing that we are free people that can choose to change our circumstances accordingly, but only if we can do that. You know, it reminds me of the Benjamin Franklin quote of when he came out of the 17, you know, when he came out of the Constitutional Convention and they were like, so what, what form of government do we have? And he said, well, you can have a republic if you can keep it. And that's sort of the place that we're at. Our public's being taken away from us. And it doesn't mean it has to be that way forever. You know, we need to fight back so that we can keep it, but that's gonna mean fighting back in thoughtful ways, you know? And as much as Occupy was a, a, a fun interaction with people, uh, I'm pretty against the idea of going out and protesting as the way to create change now. Like I think, mm -hmm. I think the way to create change is to build real sustainable, differences on the ground you know and so whether it, it's collectives that uh, do mutual aid for each other uh, like one of the organizations that I really love is food food not bombs like I think that their work is really incredible because essentially they're like look like everybody has a right to eat we don't need to go get permits to do that and we'll serve anybody's food who's hungry and I think things like that make a real difference in the world yeah they are interesting um yeah I, I, on the topic of protesting i i feel like it it's beneficial to bring awareness to something because it makes noise but it also is uh, it places people in a very and movements in a very vulnerable place where they could be easily dismantled is what i've seen so um you know, mob mentality is really dangerous and scary. And there's, you know, been very clear examples of uh, police or, you know, member other groups trying to exploit that. So a, a really good movie that just came out recently was uh, the Chicago seven. Uh, and I thought that was uh, really, I, I, I just thought it was really well done. Just seeing, you know, that like, if you are, doing something that's inherently good and right, you could be just completely destroyed arbitrarily because it um, totally goes against the interests of uh, the powerful. And yeah, and so I, I, that's something that brings me hope is like kind of what you're talking about is just like um, seeing where you have power and uh, being able to identify that and, and to use it to to what you feel is right and better um, for society. And um, yeah, it's what brings me hope for sure, is feeling like I, I can make a difference in some, I can attain a sense of meaning. I'm not just like, um, I'm not just stuck <laughs> or sentenced well, I to- think that, um, I think that that feeling of stuckness, uh, I think it's part of what this society and this form of governance imparts to us is this deep sense of despondency and hopelessness uh, and nihilism too, you know, like this idea that there is no point to any of this, that it's all dark and drab and, and hurtful. And to me, one of the other things about, you know, raising one's consciousness and seeing the conditions of, of one's own oppression to be able to fight it is also that 
actual spiritual connection to realize that like that whole idea of nihilism is actually false that like we can attain a meaningful life for ourselves but like we, we must create that together and we need to strive towards that and if we don't do those things like we will find ourselves in a place of hopelessness despondency and despair uh you know, and for me, I also believe that, like, it's through this intellectual process of being curious and raising our own consciousness and questioning things that through this process, we eventually start to realize that uh, the, the quest for our own freedom and achieving that becomes the meaningful thing that we can do that connects us spiritually to the world. Because through doing good things, we start to realize that like, oh, the goodness of what I'm doing in and of itself is a, a meaningful and purposeful thing that I can feel good about and I can make my purpose in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So where, where are some good ways that uh, people can follow your work? Uh, well, I like being a loudmouth on Twitter, so it's always a great place to, to find me on Twitter. Um, I've been doing a lot more collaborative work recently. Um, so the Bitcoin Times, their second edition is coming out, and I have a piece in that called Bitcoin in the State of Emergency, uh, which is essentially about how governments use the state of emergency to radically expand their powers and uh, essentially oppress people and you know, eventually do things like conduct genocide. Uh, and how Bitcoin is actually uh, the real state of emergency, which that's a, it's a reference to uh, a Walter Benjamin quote uh, that essentially like through Bitcoin, creating this real state of emergency that challenges the state's power and has the possibility to vanquish state power without actually fighting a physical and violent war. Uh, like it presents itself as a, this radical object of hope in this kind of drab and nihilistic world. Uh, and then I also have another piece that's coming out in 21ism, uh, which is like an art collective where they're going to be reading an essay that I titled Bit, uh, The Hope of Bitcoin. And then other than that, uh, I try to publish stuff on my website, CryptoSovereignty.org. But uh, I've, been, I've just been really busy lately. I, I recently uh, have just kind of taken on a, a number of new projects that I'm pretty excited about. But that's just kind of taken up a lot of my time and focus. So, Yeah. Yeah, I always enjoy uh, listening to your work on Guy's podcast. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate hearing that. And yeah, yeah, it's been it's been super cool having having engagement from from folks like Guy reading my essay. And uh, yeah, I really loved my conversation with him. So it was fun to to go deep in some of this stuff because you know I've been in the industry for what like almost eight years now, and. Uh, I've learned a lot. I've, I've gone really deep, but I'm, I'm really, really interested in these kind of juicy topics uh, around philosophical discussion. Like what, what really is Bitcoin like in its essence? Like, is it actually about its technology or is it about like our relationship with it as people? And that's more and more what I think about it is that like, I think it, it the technology is almost a secondary aspect about it. You know, like the, the fixed supply the fact that it has cryptography baked in it so that like other individuals we interact with are anonymous and we can't actually hold any power over them. Uh, and I find discussing and kind of teasing out these ideas really fascinating. And so I'm always really excited to get to kind of talk in depth with people about stuff. Like that. Yeah, I really like that perspective a lot. And I think I'm going to start using it when I describe it to people. It's cool. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Because yeah, I think like when... Uh, people get so hung up on, on like the money part and I want to be like, look, like, let's like set the money thing aside for a minute. Like, what does it mean to actually like own this object of wealth that has fundamental guarantees about it? Like, you know, I know that there's no possible way that more than 21 million units of Bitcoin can be created. What does it mean that like that's a guaranteed promise that I'm assured of? Like a government can't make that kind of promise to me like a an institution or a bank can't make that kind of promise to me. I mean, hell, like even, even a religion can't make that kind of promise to me at this point in time. So what does it mean that this piece of nascent software can make that sort of promise to me and assure itself and guarantee itself and has this 10-year history of doing that, whereas every other institution on the planet at this point in time can't make those sort of assurances to me? Mm -hmm. 
And that folds into a lot of my work about how it creates this new form of sovereignty utilizing cryptography. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, one of the coolest aspects of that is it, it just empowers you to be a different person in your interactions with people. So, you know, you have all these institutions that you're relying on uh, that can't fulfill their promises to you, which then jeopardizes your ability to fulfill your promises to other people. So like, you know, one of the examples I have is just like looking at all the people that um, have lived their entire lives uh, relying on the idea of receiving a pension, you know, or the idea that their retirement savings are actually going to be something, you know, and uh, you know what that means because they, they may be in a position where they're supporting, you know, a loved one or are, uh, you know, trying to leave some inheritance to somebody else or, or, or donate to a cause once they pass that they feel is meaningful that could be potentially wiped out. But when you have Bitcoin, you want to actually own it. And, and there's just so much certainty that comes with it. People talk a lot about like the volatility of it as being an issue, but, you know, I feel like the, the, uh, the upsides of it and the certainty that comes with it outweigh the price fluctuations. Um, because this idea of the volatility, like it, like, sure it's volatile, but like, if you look at it over the last 10 years, it's been volatile upwards and to the right, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's inherently what it does, you know, in markets, markets are going to change prices. But one of the reasons that Bitcoin is so volatile is because of the fixed price scheme of it. Um, you know, like a, a great example to that point of the promise is that like, you know, I've, I've secured in, in uh, cold storage, you know, like my children will both inherit a few Bitcoin and like that 20 years out, whether Bitcoin's worth zero or something like they, they get that and the network guarantees that to them in a way that even if I have a pension or, uh, you know, I have a, a, a trust set up or a will, we just don't know what's going to happen on a macroeconomic level. Like what happens if we do get hit with hyperinflation? Like do people still get their pensions? Does social security mean something anymore? Like, I'm like, this, this is the place that I get really scared is that like most people believe these institutions to some extent and really fail to see that they can pull the rug out from under you and there's really nothing you can do about it. And I think that that's really important because uh, like not to be fear mongering, but like, like that's gonna happen. Like I don't see how you can have what happened earlier this year with the creation of you know $4 trillion that gets flooded into the economy and how that isn't gonna have severe affects down the line. I yeah. hope I'm wrong, but you know, it, it doesn't look good from a, a monetary history standpoint. Yeah, if you build a house without a roof, it's eventually gonna get wet inside. Yep. <laughs> well, Eric, I really appreciate you coming on. Appreciate your time. It's a really fun yeah. conversation. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate having having the conversation and uh, it, it's always fun to know that, you know, there's seekers out there that are looking for information, looking to learn more. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate folks like yourself kind of asking thoughtful questions and wanting to, to dig into the topic more. Because if I could impart any advice onto people that are curious about Bitcoin or, you know, crypto in general, I'd just say keep, keep reading, keep being interested, keep thinking about it. And, you know, whether you choose it's for you or not, I think the the actual information that you get and knowledge that that you get imparted to you for trying to explore it is the most important part. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a really fun conversation. Eric has just got a really uh, strong ability to communicate very well, and he is a great writer. Uh, and I'll make sure to link his... Uh, his website in here where he has a lot of his writings but yeah um anarchism is always been very countercultural, uh and uh 
you know, considered a dangerous, in quotes, dangerous ideology um, because it directly challenges the state. And uh, I think it's a really interesting one for that reason. And, and you know, there's some people that have a very um, disproportionate impact on the world. And I think Satoshi Nakamoto, um, with his advent of Bitcoin and just the whole cypherpunk movement, have had huge impacts on the world. It's a very small group of people. And I think, you know, on the inverse, you know, people like that are involved with the uh, Federal Reserve or, you know, a lot of like policymaking or, you know, whatever, they also have a very disproportionate impact on the world. Um, and uh, they're kind of two warring uh, factions in a sense of, of ideologies, of having the exact opposite ideologies of, um, I would argue, and I have kind of a cynical view of it, but I would argue that you know the central banks are there to really make bankers rich and uh, keep them rich and protect them. You know, and the government in the same way has kind of formed into an institution that's just supposed to protect the rich and powerful um, at the expense of everybody else. And I wouldn't say I'm a full-blown anarchist yet, but, you know, conversations like this are really interesting to mull over uh, different ideas, um, ideas which, you know, aren't discussed in the mainstream. And uh, yeah, if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love your support on Patreon at the Tucson Bitcoin uh, podcast and uh, you know it goes a long way too if you like comment subscribe you know do that whole thing review if you're listening to it on audio um, and uh, I'm always happy to have a conversation you can hit me up at LinkedIn uh, you can find me on Twitter you know, the Twitter is probably the best place um, to reach out to me but I love to talk Bitcoin I love to explain it I love to help out uh, if, if you're new to the space, help you out, um, get you set up with a wallet, with an exchange, uh, you know, love helping businesses start to accept Bitcoin. Um, I love BTC pay server, but yeah, um, would love, I just want to see the adoption of Bitcoin in Tucson. I'm really passionate about it. I think it can go a long way to really help a lot of people that have been traditionally disempowered and yeah well thanks for listening